It is great to have everybody with us this morning. It's not Easter Sunday, but of course we still have church and it is a blessing to be able to do church with you today. I do want to start with a, uh, a short uh, illustration. I don't know if it really fits with my sermon, but it's something that happened yesterday. I was in a conversation with a couple of Clemson students and it was a good conversation. It was an opportunity for me to tell them about Jesus and to be able to invite them to be a part of the church. And um, one of the young ladies asked the question, said, so what is it that you're really passionate about in ministry? So I started to talk about being able to share the gospel with people. I talked about uh, being able to be involved in people's lives in the community. And I said, I, I also have a heart for people who are coming out of addiction. Now, the girl who had asked the really smart question to begin with, she replied, I don't really know much about addiction, but I've watched the Kardashians. And as soon as that came out of her mouth, the other girl stopped. She said, stop, wait, whatever you're about to say, I know it sounds intelligent in your mind, but when it comes out, it's not going to be because if the Kardashians are your source of wisdom, you should just stop. And she said, you know what? I think you're right. <laughs> I then explained that as a pastor, every story like that will someday end up in the pulpit. So I have fulfilled my responsibility to them today. It is really a blessing to have each of you with us today and to be able to celebrate the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is not just Easter Sunday. Obviously, this past week was a very fascinating week in the life of a church, if you stop and think about it. We celebrated Easter last Sunday with special services, even some additional services, special music typically too. The church builds toward Easter for weeks, but then as soon as Easter is over, it's almost like it's back to business as usual. Normal services, normal activities, and there is an element of truth to that. But I want you to know something today. It wasn't back to business as usual for Jesus's disciples and his close followers the week after the crucifixion and resurrection. Most of them had seen him crucified. And then, wonder of wonders, he had risen from the dead. He had appeared to them on Sunday. You have appearances to Mary Magdalene and to the other women, his appearance to Peter and to the men on the road to Emmaus, and then to the other disciples, not including Thomas, later that evening. It had been quite a day. Easter Sunday was a big day for the disciples. Now, the question I want you to think about this morning is, what was it like on Monday for these disciples and followers of Christ? How about on Tuesday or Wednesday? I don't, I don't know for sure if we have all the appearances of the Lord recorded for us or not, but it's not until the following Sunday that he would actually appear again, at least as history tells it, which is when he appeared to all 11 disciples. So a week passes between all of these many appearances and then suddenly in John chapter 20, we see Jesus appearing to all of the disciples. So what was going on in the minds of all of these disciples as they went from Easter Sunday and all the appearances into a time of silence? Were they looking for him to appear again maybe on Monday? Were they disappointed at the end of 
say Monday or Tuesday or Thursday when there had been no appearance. I mean, whatever day of the week it was, at some point you're expecting him to come back again. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? Luke tells us that Jesus walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That began, and in that conversation, he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So maybe Cleopas and his friend had shared with the disciples, the other 11 disciples, really 10 at that point, because I guess there was 11 disciples because Judas wasn't with them anymore. Maybe he'd share with those disciples what Jesus taught them. And maybe they were with them during the week or at least part of that week. For we do know that the two of them returned to Jerusalem that Sunday evening. In fact, in chapter 24, verse 36 of Luke, it indicates that it was while all this reporting was going on that Jesus made his appearance to the group. So Jesus clearly appeared. Maybe the disciples and the followers of Christ spent the week pouring over the Old Testament scriptures, studying, discussing all of the Old Testament prophecies that referred to Christ. It would have been an exciting Bible study if you really think about it. Can't you just hear as they searched the prophecies and said, hey guys, here's another one. And each one, they were able to connect the dots perhaps to what Jesus Christ had just done right before their eyes. Or were they cautiously excited, yet still huddled behind locked doors in fear. When Jesus appeared to them on that following Sunday, they were behind locked doors as they had been on Easter Sunday. Did they have spies? They were out trying to gather information about what the religious leaders and even the Romans were saying in light of the rumors of Jesus's resurrection. Were they trying to get a sense of the mood and direction of the religious leaders of their day were they skeptical of what was to come? And of course, one of the long time unanswered questions for me has been, what about those saints who were brought back from the dead to life when Jesus died and then went into Jerusalem and were seen by so many others? Listen to the words of Matthew 27, verse 51 to 53. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. What happened to them? Did they connect up with some of the disciples somewhere along the way? I sure would have wanted to talk with them and say what you want about the disciples stealing Jesus's body, but what do you do with all these people that came back to life? Because that was the argument. Well, Jesus wasn't really resurrected. The disciples just came and stole his body. Well, what do you do with all these people that are back to life all of a sudden? We saw them. They were dead. We buried them ourselves. How do you argue with what was taking place? But back to my question, what was this past week like for them? I present these as possible scenarios, and one of the things I try to do in reading the scriptures is often interject myself into the scene, try to imagine what would have been going on and what the people involved would be doing 
or how they would be responding. And I think that sometimes it helps me to understand the passage a bit. After Easter is over, it is easy for us to forget about what it was like for Jesus and his disciples and the followers during that week. And I really don't have a good answer because it doesn't give us any of that information. The only possible report we have of anything that transpired with the disciples that week is in John chapter 20, verse 24 and 25, of the 10 telling Thomas about seeing the Lord. You remember, he wasn't there the first time, and they decided they were going to share with them, hey, this is what happened. We saw Jesus. He is resurrected. He is alive. I'll tell you, this is one of the occasions when I would have loved to have been a part of their conversations, especially throughout the week, because they're still trying to convince Thomas it's real. So here they are, the risen Christ has appeared to them. They've seen him, they've touched him, they've eaten with him, they've talked with him, and then he disappeared again. How that happened, I don't know. Did Jesus just all of a sudden, poof, he was gone? Did he lay down to rest with his disciples like he had done so many other times? And when they woke up, he was just gone? Did he suddenly ascend through the roof? Did he make his way through the locked doors? Suddenly, he was gone. It's Monday now or Tuesday, whatever day. And I wonder if they were thinking, now what? Hallelujah, he is risen. But now what are we supposed to do? Or maybe they just continued to stay low-key out of fear of the religious leaders. We don't want to be next. Remember, the religious leaders were circulating the rumor that they had stolen Jesus' body. Maybe they would be punished. What was the past week like? Maybe we're given a little bit of hint in John chapter 21. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles there. We're going to eventually end up in Acts chapter 2 today, but there's so many things that happen between really the crucifixion, the resurrection, all the way to what happens in Acts chapter 2. And it's important for us to see all of these things unfold. Granted, this is a little bit later because this follows Jesus' second appearance to them on the Sunday following Easter. But observe their demeanor for a minute. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, remember the angel's message to them in Matthew 28? Behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. That is why they are in Galilee now. But they had also been told to go to a particular mountain in Galilee where the Lord would appear to them. This event appears to have happened before the mountain appearance, uh, in John uh, chapter 20, verse 14, says this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So basically the Lord keeps appearing, but they're still in question. What do we do? What do what's next? 
At this point, they've seen the risen Christ twice. Peter's statement in the verse 3 probably means more than just, I'm going to do a little fish. And he wasn't bored. He wasn't just going to wait patiently. That's not who Peter was. Peter was aggressive. He was the guy who he was going to lead everybody else. If anything, he wanted to force things to happen. He wasn't going fishing because he was bored. He's going back to what he knew. He's going back to what was comfortable for him. Probably gives us a little bit of an indication into his demeanor just a little bit. Anyway, after that night of fishing, catching nothing, Jesus appears to them in the morning on the shore where he has already prepared breakfast for them. I guess that's because he knew they didn't have any fish. And after breakfast, has his heart-to-heart talk with Peter. That's where he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I've been asking you to try to imagine what the first week after Jesus' resurrection must have been like for the disciples. haven't really answered my own questions because we're not given a lot of information on that. Let me make a point and then draw an application for you. As I read the accounts of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, there is nothing I find really impressive about them. They doubted the resurrection. Remember the ladies came and told, told them that Jesus had been resurrected and they went back not believing. They didn't believe eyewitness accounts. In Luke's gospel, we read in response to the women's report, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Thomas wouldn't even believe his fellow disciples who had experienced Jesus' resurrection. They needed hard evidence to convince them. The scene of them going fishing is less than impressive because they're not looking forward to what's ahead, but rather just, we need a break. In conclusion, none of the post-resurrection accounts found in the Gospels concerning these disciples would make you want to turn this movement over to them question, what what do we see? When do we see change in the disciples? When do we see the boldness and faith in their lives? It's after Pentecost. It's what we experience in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the believers, the crucifixion had taken place. The resurrection had taken place. They had seen and they had walked with the risen Lord. But it was not until the coming of the Holy Spirit that we observe anything significant happening in them or through them. In fact, observe with me some of the contrasts after Pentecost for a moment. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Peter stands up in front of the crowd and he preaches his first sermon. He didn't preach some wishy-washy sermon where he's just making everybody feel good. Hey, you guys can be prosperous. You guys can feel good about life. That's not the kind of message that Peter gives. He said in part, men of Israel, beginning in verse 14, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Obviously, that's verse 22 through 24. The sermon began in verse 14. They know very clearly 
this is addressed to them. He said, you crucified. Yes, it does talk about sinful men, lawless men who were a part of this, but you crucified them. This isn't about those people. So easy for us to talk about those people, you know? Talk about the world around us and all the things that are happening. We think, how can they be like that? Well, that's not the kind of message Peter's offering. He said, you crucified him. You're responsible. Then later in verse 36, we read, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in verse 38, he tells them how to remedy the situation. In fact, they specifically ask, what should we do? And in verse 38, repent. In Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, we see that Peter's second sermon carried much the same tone. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. And then skipping down to verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. At the end of this sermon, the religious leaders actually arrest Peter and John. I imagine John sitting there thinking, whoa, Peter, you might need to tone it down just a little bit. They bring them before the council. Would Peter back down like he had done around the fire when he denied Jesus? When a young lady said, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? Aren't you a Galilean? And he said, absolutely not. No way. Look what he says in Acts 4, verse 8 to 10. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. So in these first two sermons, and then in the response to the second sermon, in this private encounter with these leaders, Peter is not backing down. But what a contrast. I mean, this guy's a wimp before the resurrection. He is a wimp before the crucifixion. He is scared to death. I know, he's the one who took the sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers as Jesus was being arrested. But he's also the man who denied Christ three times because he was afraid of what might happen to him. Something has changed. He is now placing the blame where it belongs. The leaders then threatened Peter and John and told them not to preach about Jesus anymore how would they respond? Would they back down? Acts 4, 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered them. So this is John joining in now. It's not just Peter. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen 
and heard. And it is the same all the way through the book of Acts. If you have never read through these accounts before, you would turn back and look at the Gospels. You would immediately assume, well, these guys are just powerful. These are great leaders, but that's not who they were. These men were fearful. They were afraid of what might happen. Something has dramatically changed them. Well, we know it wasn't something, but rather it was someone. It was God, the Holy Spirit, coming upon them, filling them, and empowering them. That's why Jesus commanded them in Acts 1.8 to stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit came, they would be filled with power. Power to be his faithful and mighty witnesses to a world that desperately needed it. And that is exactly what we see happening from the day of Pentecost on. And since the Holy Spirit is God, what is the depth of the meaning of those words? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. It is saying that we are filled with God himself. I ask you this morning, have you lost the wonder? And yes, maybe even the awesomeness of that truth. Has that grown old and maybe comfortable for you? Recognize what God did here. Frail, powerless, weak, timid men were not just given help around the edges, but they were filled with the Spirit of God himself, and it radically changed them and their service for God. God doesn't intend to make us slightly better versions of our old self, but rather he intends to have his spirit dwell in us, making us brand new. Brothers and sisters, we are no different from these disciples. We have far too many Christians who are kind of like the disciples before Pentecost. They believe in Christ. They gather to worship Christ. They believe in his death and his resurrection, but there is no power from on high in their lives. They're not making any impact in the world around them. There is no boldness, boldness to declare Christ. There is no power to live the Christian life. There is no transformation in their lives. They've simply become better versions of their old self. Often we have become like eight-cylinder engines running on one cylinder. Yet who can deny that this is the greatest need in our church today and even in our individual lives? Too much of our religious life is made up of programs and human ideas and talents and strategies. We are constantly trying to stay one up on newest strategies or programs, hoping that somehow we will be able to be good enough to at least have a good enough program that people will listen. Well, what if God would just transform lives? I want you to know that the greatest thing that could impact the world around us is a transformed life. One where the spirit of God dwells in you and you are not the same person you were before. People look at you and they say, well, I see something different in you. What is it? And you can say, it's the power of God that has transformed me. I'm not the same man that I was. 
How many of us have come across individuals that we look at and we think, wow, I remember when they were like this, but here they are today. It's like they're a completely different person. And the truth is they are because now the spirit of God dwells in them. He did not make them a better version of their old self, but rather he made them new in him. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit still comes and dwells in people. Samuel Chadwick put it this way. He said, the Christian religion is hopeless without the Holy Ghost. My guess is that every one of us here today is deeply concerned about the direction of our culture and maybe even our country. We are not going to affect our culture or be used of God to challenge and change people's lives without the empowerment and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. You may look and feel broken for people in your world, and yeah, you can do some nice things and they'll feel better when they walk away, but the truth is, it, the truth is it is only the power of the Holy Spirit that can truly empower you to be the world changer that God intended you to be. Did you know he intended you to be a world changer? These guys, they're ordinary individuals. I know you're talking about Peter and he's the one that Christ said, your name shall be Peter and on this rock I will build my church. You say, this is a guy who's great. He had the potential and Jesus saw it. Peter was a fisherman. He's an ordinary guy. He was just like everybody else, maybe a little loud, had an outgoing personality, apparently, a little bit bold in the things he would say, maybe even just a touch of arrogance. He's just like everybody else. Peter wasn't the only one. All of these disciples, they're ordinary individuals, tax collectors, fishermen, doctors. You have all these individuals who, yeah, they had important roles, sort of. <laughs> but life would have went on without them but God intended for them to be world changers. But in order for that to happen, they had to first be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand. We cannot do without the crucifixion that we talked about on Good Friday. It is essential to our faith. We cannot do without the resurrection. It gives validation to our faith. We celebrate the resurrection. It means something to us. But those two events by themselves did not change these men and bring about the boldness and faith that we read about for the rest of the New Testament. A boldness and faith that literally changed their world. In fact, let me make a couple of quick observations about the Holy Spirit's work through Peter's sermon. Specifically the one in Acts chapter 2. In chapter 2, it is the power of God that opens the door for proclamation. On, on that particular day, the disciples had gathered together and they were simply there to enjoy a meal. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit showed up. And as the Holy Spirit showed up, each one had tongues of fire that rested upon them. There was the sound of what sounded like a mighty rushing wind. The entire place was shaken. And what happens is everybody else begins to come out of the woodwork to see what's going on. And suddenly what happened in an upper room spills out into the streets and these disciples begin to speak. And as they speak, everybody understands what they're saying very clearly. It is the Spirit of God who is interpreting for them. It was the power of God that opened up the door to proclamation. 
in chapter 3. It is the power of God that opens up the door for proclamation as well. He just displays his power in a different way. In chapter 4, it is again the power of God that opens up the door to proclamation. In this case, it was because Peter and John had healed a man who had been born lame. It's hard to argue with a transformed life, isn't it? Know that it is the power of God at work in your life that will enable the word of God to be spread to those around you. See, it's not enough for you to go and tell other people Jesus is the hope for the world if you are not living a transformed life. It was the power of God at the, on display that opened up the door to proclamation every single time. If you really want to be a world changer, allow the power of God to be on display in your life. Where there is change, it is time to allow God to make that change happen. Allow the spirit to dwell in you and to change who you are. Have you been experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Is it part of your daily experience? God intended it to be the norm, not the exception. I point that out because on the day of Pentecost, this had really never happened before. In the Old Testament, there were individuals who experienced the Holy Spirit. There were prophets who the Spirit would speak to and he would give them a message where the Spirit would come upon them and they could do incredible acts. You had Elijah who could call down fire from heaven, it seemed like. He could call, he could do whatever he wanted. But that was a unique experience. On the day of Pentecost, that changes. It's no longer a unique experience, but rather the Spirit of God is given to all those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. God intended it to be the norm. When was the last time you experienced the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Does your Christian living look more like the pre-Pentecost disciples or the post-Pentecost disciples today? What do you truly desire to look like? Brothers and sisters, if we want it, if we really want that transformed life, there are some things we need. We have to be dissatisfied with our lives as they are. You see, here's the problem. For many of us, we've become so comfortable with the way things are. We really, if it changes, it's okay, but I'd rather not. I kind of like where I'm at. We need to become dissatisfied with our level of commitment. We need to become dissatisfied with our lack of spiritual power. We need to become dissatisfied with our lack of intimacy with God. When was the last time you felt like you were in an intimate relationship with God? You could talk to each other and you could communicate and listen and love on one another. We need to become dissatisfied with basically staying in the same place spiritually. We need to become dissatisfied with it all and wanting more of the reality of God in our lives and wanting it to the place of dethroning ourselves and enthroning him. Several years ago, I was talking with a soon-to-be pastor regarding what a truly devoted life for Christ should look like. The term that we often use in the church world for this is sanctification. It literally means to be cleansed or to be set apart. But in application, what does that actually look like? 
I loved his response. He said, if you've ever seen those bumper stickers which say, God is my co-pilot, he said, that's cute on a bumper sticker, but it's an awful theology. He added, that means God is in the car with you. You're saved. But in sanctification, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it means me moving over and making God the pilot and not the co-pilot. But you see, too many of us just want God in the car, but not in the driver's seat. If you are one of those, if you are content with him just being along for the ride, just a passenger, you likely never experience what those followers of Christ did on the day of Pentecost so long ago. You'll never be changed. You'll never be transformed. You'll never be greatly used of God to impact people and the kingdom. You'll just pretty much remain the same. A good person, but spiritually powerless. And man, I could talk about all kinds of examples of this. Have you reached that level of dissatisfaction yet? Are you ready to say, God, you can have all of me? Not just today in a church service because the pastor is calling us to this, but also on Tuesday afternoon, on Thursday afternoon, whatever is going on in my life. In fact, you can have all of me all the time. I challenge you today to examine the Holy Spirit's presence and work in your life. I suggest to you that if the Lord is merely your co-pilot, if he's just along for the ride, it is time to change seats. Anybody here this morning reach that level of dissatisfaction where you're willing to make that change? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, let me first just say thank you for your grace. Thank you for the crucifixion and the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the fact that all of those things really did happen. You did pay the price for our sins and you do offer us forgiveness and a hope for eternal life. But thank you also that you were not content leaving us to fend for ourselves. And on the day of Pentecost, you fulfilled your promise of sending your Holy Spirit to dwell among your people. Father, I pray today that we would never be satisfied with a powerless life, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us richly. I pray that you would take control of our lives. So many of us have been content because we got enough of you. We've been content because we know that you died for us. We've been content because we know there was a resurrection. We've been content because our ticket is punched and we look at this as we're safe, we're secure. We're going to be able to get to heaven one day. Lord, may we never, ever be content of just having just a little bit of you. Father, I pray today that you would send your Holy Spirit to dwell in each of us. And I pray that you would empower us to be world changers, much like we see described in the book of Acts. I pray that you would take ordinary vessels, us, and that you would fill us and you would work in such a way that the rest of the world would have to take notice because it's not just people who are doing it. It is the power of God who is accomplishing something great in and through us. Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit 
would lead us and guide us, that you would take us every step of the way, that you would give us strength, that you would give us words of wisdom, that you would completely transform everything about us, change the desires of our hearts. Father, I pray today that this would be more than something that we talk about, but I pray that your power would be on display in us. May the rest of the world look at us and see these are people that were evil, ungodly, average. And they have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Put your power on display in us today. And then, as the world looks, help us to boldly proclaim the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you today for your grace. I pray that it would be extended to us, but I pray that you would use us to do things we never, ever could have imagined. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to challenge you this morning, and you've heard the prayer, you've heard the message. If you are walking a life that is absent of the Holy Spirit's power, you're not asking, I'm not judging in any way. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not looking at you and saying, well, you've got the Holy Spirit and you don't. What I'm challenging you with today, because you know whether you do or not. The reality is, if you are walking as just an improved version of your old self, it is likely that that's not the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in you. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit desires to completely transform you into his likeness. And I believe today that that is available. If you have not yet experienced that, then I challenge you. Okay, so here's the deal. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, it makes us a little bit nervous because sometimes we've seen other people and they've equated the Holy Spirit with different things. Like, okay, well, that means you got to speak in tongues. That's not what it says. Actually, the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is real. It means it should impact everything about you. That's Maybe that is a little bit scary because maybe I don't think the same way I did before and I kind of, there was comfort in the way I used to do it. What an incredible ride it is to allow the Holy Spirit to be the one driving instead of you. And that's what's been made available to us. So I just challenge you today. I've already prayed, but maybe you today as we, we've sat here together, maybe you feel like it's time to renew something with me in Christ. It's time to allow the Holy Spirit to truly take control of me. And if that's you, man, come find me. I would love to talk with you and pray with you before you leave here today. Or you could just do it by yourself, and that's okay too. So it's, it's the beauty of God. He doesn't need other people to accomplish his stuff, but sometimes he uses other people. So it is such a blessing to have each of you with us. And I do think, I do want to take two moments to say something else. First of all, we talked about not long ago, Mrs. James had a birthday coming up. This week, actually, she had her 99th birthday. So we want to take a moment and say happy birthday. And it is such a blessing. Actually, she has three sons here this morning, which is awesome. I know that probably is a great joy to Mrs. James as well, and the rest of the family too. Not that the rest of y'all don't matter, but... Anyways, it's such a blessing, and we're so grateful for that. Uh, the other thing I was asked to mention is we have uh, uh, the packets that will be used for the local church conference. They'll be available as you leave today. See my mom. She'll be the one. Um, and we do take up the offering, but it's as you leave. So I just encourage you to participate in that way. Thank you for being with us today.
Go in peace.